the theme for the afternoon talk is <coughs> seeing and knowing. <coughs> I can uh, recall, if I may say, some uh, years ago when I was uh, on the road in my uh, early uh, 20s, traveling through uh, this part of uh, the world from uh, Europe, spending time in various places in uh, South Asia, and then with, uh, running out of uh, money going down into Australia. And uh, while spending a period of time there, I was working, which I had done in parts of Asia as well, in this case for uh, ABC, which is the main news uh, radio broadcasting station in Australia. And I was covering a story, <coughs> and the story, by covering it by a telephone, was of a young Finnish guy, he was, if I recall correctly, around 24 years of age, and working in one of the mining camps in the outback of Australia. And he had, one evening, just gone for a walk. And those of you who know in the outback of Australia, you only have to walk off the road for 10 or 20 metres and then not be able to find where the road is, and become completely lost in the bush. And this is what happened to him. So, initially, the men in the mining camp began a search for him without any kind of success. They called in the police to help with the search. Again, no success. They called in the helicopters. One day, three, two days, three days, four days had gone by and still hadn't found him called in the, the dogs, the tracker dogs, still couldn't find this guy. And of course the level of concern was growing uh, considerably. And then they brought in an Aborigine. <laughs> and the Aborigine began the search uh, for him. And a few hours later, through the Aborigine tracker, they found this guy. So. Myself, based as the reporter in Sydney, was ringing up the police and trying to get hold of the guy who was uh, found. And the police who accompanied Aberdeen tracker, tracker said to me that they could not possibly see what the Aborigine tracker could see. It wasn't like there were footprints or broken branches or any telltale signs, but he just knew. And so they just followed behind him and he walked and he walked and he walked and then they found this uh, despairingly lost uh, young Finnish guy in, in the bush through the tracker. And sometimes we wonder, <coughs> and using the story as a fact but also uh, as a metaphor as well, what is it that some human beings can see with their eyes, with their whole being, which others, others of us, may not be able to, to see? What is it that goes in, on in the consciousness to make this accessible? And the story was also a rather story for uh, uh, myself as well. Because when I went back to uh, my room in uh, King's Cross, which was rather well known as the red light district, I must say, in those days, maybe still is, from the uh, ABC uh, news desk, I uh, thought to myself, do I just want to be a newspaper reporter, which is what I was doing, and could do, and some might say, but having worked in uh, uh, Turkey, and 
for, for Associated Press and having covered the Shah's uh, coronation in Iran and uh, uh, the war in Laos, etc., etc., for a young guy, one's so-called career was developing go uh, well as a, as a newsman. And I remember getting home to the little bedsitter that I was living in. And I just asked myself, and some of you may be asking yourself on the days of the retreat here, is this really what I want to do? Just be a kind of detached witness to what's going on in other people's lives and report on it for an agency or a newspaper or a radio station or whatever uh, it might be. <coughs> and sometimes you and I get to a point and and it's a point, a kind of turning point, a, a crossroad. We can stay with the relatively secure, relatively uh, possible possibilities for our future. And we can see some way ahead through our work, through our role, through our position or whatever it might be. But the seeing and the knowing is different. But he uses these terms, seeing and knowing, quite a lot. And one knows somewhere deep inside, that's not what it's about. That's not who I am. That's not what I want to be. And one's got no framework of language. Got one, one's got no teacher, no authority, no practice, no understanding in that conventional sense. But one sees something. One sees this is not for me and one can't compromise on it. One has to drop it, has to let it go. And the knowing is the knowing is very simple. Knowing that this is not it. That's all that one knows. And then the life and the world and the inner world and the outer world is rather barren in a way, rather bare because one's given up something which one's put time and attention to and developed uh, as a whatever, lifestyle, or as a commitment, whatever it might be. And this meeting, or uh, interaction of seeing and knowing, matters a great deal, because with it and supporting it, there's a certain kind of ethic which I want us to uh, explore and touch upon a little bit uh, this afternoon. Sometimes, For those of you particularly who have some connection associated with the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition, we'll know, and you will have seen on the notice board just down the corridor there, the, uh, what is called the five precepts. And they're obviously very important and invaluable, insofar that in the relationship to them, one is exploring and finding out what it means not to kill, not to cause harm, <coughs> not to cause uh, suffering, to, this is important here, to others, to others. And also, with the fifth one, not to bring upon oneself suffering as well through drugs and through uh, alcohol and, it, and those addictions. And they're part of, not commandments nor rules, but they are part and parcel of a thoughtful, humans, uh, be, a thoughtful human being's way of life. I want to live my life intelligently. I want to live my life with some dignity and respect, and one of the ways that I show respect to myself is in terms of my communication and my relationship with so-called others. 
Sometimes in our auto-humanness, we forget this. And what we notice with ourselves, considerably and all too easy, that the stronger the sense of self, correspondingly, correspondingly, and to the same degree, there will be the sense of other. It's not possible to have a sense of self, a strong sense of self, in all the questionable ways that it arises, without an equal sense of other. And the more you and I identify with ourselves, the greater the sense of other. And this is dangerous. This is terribly dangerous for our species. It's terribly dangerous <coughs> for, for, our, for our health as a, as a, as a, uh, for humanity. And sometimes when we look, we say, this sense of other, once that's fixed in the mind, once we actually believe in the other, then we can do just about anything. Anything. Because they're other. Somebody was asking over there so, two or three days ago about uh, the situation with uh, Iraq. <coughs> there were elections on the Sunday. I don't want to go into all the, uh, the details. People voted. There were some deaths in some areas. The Kurds were voting very strongly because they want their constitution and need a voice in in the Constitution, in other areas, the Sunnis were much smaller vote because they feel marginalised, the Shias are voting much more strongly, etc, etc, etc. Of course, and one cannot forget this, more than 100,000 people, minimal, will not have the opportunity to vote because the American armed forces have killed them. Hundreds of thousands of others don't have the opportunity to vote because they've been traumatised, as well as the fears and the terrors elsewhere that, go, that, that take place. We look at all of this. And we say, what is it? What is it that goes on with us as human beings? And if we probe a little more carefully and a little bit more deeply into it, we see that underneath it all, in it through, is the sense of other. There has to be other. And once there is this other, there is the gap. But it's more than that as well. Because there has to be a degree of identity with something. And so sometimes you and I say, well, what's, what's evil? What's evil? What's bad? What's, what's wrong? What is it that we uh, react against or we reject against? What's, what, what's, what's good? And sometimes say, what's bad? What's wrong? What's evil? Uh, what's terror? And you and I can put all sorts of conditions and causes. We can say, well, it's upbringing that brings about this violence. We can say that it's uh, belief systems that bring about. We could say that it's poverty in the in environment of being dispossessed that bring it all, all about. Of course, these are all conditions. But what would, might be a very major one from the standpoint of the Dharma? And the very major one from the standpoint of, from, of the Dharma is, and please never forget this, it is identification with the good. It's the identification with the belief in the good. And once one has this identification with the good, there is the not good, there is the bad, there is the wrong, there is the other, there is terror and there is war. Because you or I or anyone has identified with what one believes to be the good. And this 
good, evil, good, bad, good, not good syndrome is, haunts human existence. It is the terror of the earth. And there's no greater terror on earth than those who identify with the good. This is terrorism. Whether it's by the state or whether it's by the organisation, it is terrorism. Whether it's from the air to the ground or whether it's on the ground, it's terrorism. We identify with what is good, we think this is right, and we start then having to, through this, point the accusing finger. And we're merciless in the way that we do it. We do it with word, we do it with action, we do it with view. And so, though you and I consider the ethics as posted on the wall and important and as valuable uh, uh, that, they, that they are, surely the deep ethic is not upholding ten commandments and five precepts. The deep ethic is to really question in life what's true. What's authentic? What, what's, what's real? Deep question in life is to deeply question the, what is this self that generates the other? What is it that's going on with the subject that makes the object upon which I can dump so much? It needs the self for the other self. What is it? What, what, what are we doing as beings on the earth that we live in this nightmare of imprisonment of self and other and all the mental construction that it has and we haven't gone deep haven't got behind it we haven't got underneath this extraordinary phenomena and all Dharma teachings are addressing this if you're interested in Dharma you'll listen Sometimes we take a look at our, our life and it's uh, the question of uh, what matters. And sometimes when we look and we say, well, what, what matters? What really, really matters? And a number of you over the days here have been, and rather uh, beautifully so, have been uh, reporting your experiences. Sometimes there is some wisdom to the experiences. It goes along with the experience. And the wisdom with the experience allows us to see the experience more clearly. And one of the important aspects of all these experiences that go on, unquestionably so really, is what the feelings are. How we feel. How we feel. And one of the ways that we kind of get ourselves in an internal mess with how we, how we feel, which hardly seems to go really examined with us, and that is the feeling of being and feeling sorry for oneself. This is a terror. This is a terror. Because in the feeling, in the experience of feeling sorry for oneself, one, in that moment, in, the, in such a period of time, has made oneself into a victim. 
born out of feeling sorry for oneself. And the identity of feeling a victim in such an experience, what does it do? It dehumanizes you. And if we're not generating in this self-other nightmare views towards ourselves and making ourselves victims through feeling sorry for ourselves or who or what we have identified with our group, our situation, our environment, our country or whatever, then, and we can't handle that because we feel sorry for ourselves, we react. And what, how do we react? We want to make other, another person a victim. We want to put the blame on the other person. We want to find all the fault with the other person. <coughs> we want to make war on the other. Because we haven't been able, as a person, or as a community, or as a nation, been able to handle the feeling of being hurt, and the feeling of feeling sorry for ourselves, for what has happened. And in the end, there's a huge reaction. And we do it in the home, we do it on the street, we do it with our friends, our lovers, our partners, our parents, our family, and we do it one nation to the other. And all the terrible consequences of it. For people unable, despite all the therapy and all the meditation and all the psychology and all the resources that we have, we still have not learned how to deal with the feelings of feeling sorry for oneself. And until we do, we won't be transformed. Until we do, we dehumanize ourselves. Because of this particular identity, so problematic. And we have to find, when you feel like that, you feel sorry for yourself, for all the reasons, and you human reasons. The only way that it can stay and be substantiated and kept alive and made real is through thought is through the consistency of having to keep justifying it the mind has got to come in and give reasons to feel sorry for oneself without the reasons one can't sustain it and damn it one believes the reasons instead of saying this is just a load of claptrap one gives authority to the seer that this is worth feeling sorry for myself about. I put that projection and that view into it and the seer believes what he or she sees and therefore gives substance to the reason and therefore one becomes a victim. We know so little about ourselves. We know so little. We have a, a fetish about believing what our mind tells us about ourselves. We are nuts. <laughs> So if some passion is going to come to our life and some fire is going to come to our life, 
somewhere or another, one is going to stop this belief, being a victim. <coughs> because when we can't handle it, you, I, whoever it is, will make others into victims. Because we want him, her, them to feel like we feel. <coughs> Isn't it sad? Isn't it belittling? Isn't this all dehumanizing? Where is the dignity? Where is the respect? Where is the connectedness? So as I say, we, we take notice of the uh, ethics there. They are important and, 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 and helpful and, and to be conscious. But we always want to probe deeper than these forms and what these religions, Buddhism and the, and the rest of them, what they, what, they, what they tell us. They're just kind of superficial reminders. We've got to cut deep because Unless we do, we won't change. What is this seeing and knowing that, uh, uh, that goes on? <coughs> Sometimes in the field of experiences, whatever those experiences that you and I might have, that the world is a Life is a kind of a strange thing. We were talking the other day, one or two of you have been asking, a little bit about uh, voices. And one or two of the questions, too, in the question-answer period we had the other day, was also a little bit about the voices, the internal voices, the voices. Where do they come from? How do they originate? And these days we hear... Uh, voices in all sorts of dire directions you hear channeling and da 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 I don't want to go in, in, in all of that it's boring <laughs> and sometimes we get into a lot of questioning in ourselves and this has been referred to earlier on about why I think it would be rather a good idea to take a lifelong vow <laughs> <laughs> Never to start a question off for the rest of one's life with why. <laughs> because I mean it. <laughs> Mostly. <coughs> because we're fishing around in our dear old brain cells. Or in some other poor devils. For an explanation. And we often are looking for the explanation which feels agreeable. Not that it m makes much difference to anything, but it gives a slightly temporary pleasant feeling. <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> and it looks like in our connection with the world, with life. There are sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touches, the five senses, this is our world around us, which you and I interact with, upon which we attribute all manner 
this is more important than that, this is more special than that, this is more likable than that, this I approve of, this I don't approve of. So the mind enters into its engagement. And quite often, as we know only too well, when we're looking, so to speak, outside of ourselves, we are seeing as much about ourselves as we are what's out there. Whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, what goes on inside tells us as much about what's out there, but it also and equally and correspondingly tells us much about what's going on here. And sometimes we are absolutely convinced that what's out there is totally out there and there's nothing in here. This is called delusion. <laughs> or a coma. <laughs> And sometimes, what's going on out there, the sense of the other, we deny it or refuse it, and then we go to the other extreme, we say, oh, it's all in me. It's just me. It's all my projection. It's all my stuff. It's just me. I create my own world, which is complete nonsense. And, and therefore, it's not out there. It's all in me, I create my own world. And we get pulled with the self, other, and it, it can only happen with the, if there is self and other, this duality, which the mind moves, and it either puts it all on there, the other, and forgets what's here, or easily we put it all on ourselves. what happens in life, and we forget each other. And so our existence, our pathetic existence, <laughs> not the real one, moves back and forth between self and other, self and other, seeing this, seeing that, experiencing this and experiencing that, and not knowing. Not knowing what? What is it we don't know? If you live in the uh, kind of spiritual world, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, but, but it, the tragedy may have happened to you. A religious world, a philosophical world, a secular culture, a consumer culture, <coughs> whatever, <coughs> scientific, whatever, all a kind of layers which seem rather than help us get to the truth of the matter, which is the only ethic worth being concerned with, we find ourselves again and again not really interested in truth, but interested in the formulations about it. Oh dear, oh dear. Dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And when that happens, 
we're back into the self and other. So the Buddhists would come along, God bless their little hearts, and say, um, <laughs> everything is impermanent. <laughs> so people do their pujas in front of such statements. And then um, others will come and then speak about God, and, that, and others will uh, come and have their uh, views about uh, science and uh, e evolution and other theories. And it seems like as human beings we're juxtaposing together, almost kind of competing with each other uh, about what truth is and what reality is. <coughs> now remember, years ago when I was here in the 1970s, one period in time I was here, I was in <coughs> India for about two and <coughs> I was a monk two and a half years wandering up and down the length and breadth of this uh, country and staying in ashrams and uh, uh, monasteries, uh, etc. And remember, I, I arrived here from Thailand, if I may say, with 500 rupees and a weekly allowance of 10 rupees a week to uh, live on uh, there. Fortunately, people are kind in India and they fed me and Westerners and Indian communities, etc. And at that time, the president of India, were, who wrote a, a lovely commentary in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, one of the great books of India, Song of God, fantastic insights, great realizations of uh, Krishna and his dialogue with Arjuna. So here we are, we're going around this world and we carrying our formulations about what is true or what is real or our views and opinions. So, it could have been anybody, but in this case it was one of the, 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 the missionaries. Knocked on his door in, in Madras, he had a home in Madras, and brought out the, the Bible and began quoting the Bible, etc. <coughs> so the good president of uh, India, th th those days things were much more informal here, there wasn't all these bodyguards around, you could actually knock on the door. I remember spending the evening with the defence minister, giving him a hard time a few months ago, a year or two, a few years ago. <laughs> and um, he, the, uh, the president, that the person who was knocking on the door had so much absolute conviction that he was right and then <coughs> threw out a one-liner uh, about Buddhism, Hinduism and uh, Islam, you know, three of the major religions of the old India, all belong to Satan, to the devil. <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute. Well, not Buddhism, <laughs> that bad joke. And um, <laughs> and then the wise president of India looked the man straight in the eye and gave one of the great one-liners of the last century. He said to him, 
What can Jesus, because the man was quoting Jesus all the time, the only way, this is the only way, no one can reach the Father except by me, John 6, verse 14. He said to him, what can Jesus do for me what he surely hasn't done for you? So sometimes we build up, and any religion, philosophy, science, you know, don't particularize it. We can build up a picture, an ideology, a, a belief. And somehow the self thinks it knows, and in thinking that it knows, identifies it with, and once the identification with sets in, it generates the other. It has to, I say, it has to. And we still want to know what's truth, what's real, what's authentic. And it can't be in this spectrum of views and opinions, views and opinions. <coughs> and surely, if truth means something, if it has any significance if it's in, our, in our life, in our existence, in our being, surely it has to have some power to it. It has to change, it has to transform, it has to awaken. And that's what truth does. It, how could it be a formula, a set of views and opinions which we carry around like weapons? Not in that realm. Someone said today in one of the uh, groups, after listening to uh, one of the uh, talks from uh, uh, Jaya, sometimes the consciousness, it has some uh, shift in the act of listening. And just talking with uh, Jenny here, teaching with us in uh, Saranath, we're commenting on one of the shifts that the, the Buddha has made, and I just want to refer a little bit to it because it really I think it helps to capture it a little bit more as well the tradition has uh, said and has given great reliance on the past we know that and sometimes it is as it were that the truth as it were was in the book in the tradition in the lineage in the old in the dead. <coughs> and therefore, it was up to us to believe in the text, whether it's called the Gita, whether it's, it's called the Bible, or the Quran, or the, the Buddhist... Uh, uh, used to be hundreds of them. They're not in there. <coughs> Good, they probably burnt them. Marvellous. <laughs> and, uh, and we put it in somewhere there. And then you and I, as human beings, are expected to believe as a statement of the truth. The Buddha's uh, what should we say, students, from, from inspiration from the Buddha, said, forget all that. 
Don't say, call those words, those sentences, those things you remember as truth. And made the shift, and it's a wonderful uh, historical uh, shift, to the finding out the truth for yourself, which you see and know for yourself. It doesn't involve memory. It doesn't revolve, evolve, revolve, devolve, I'm not much sure, but <laughs> Volvo, who knows? But anyway, it does not connected with the old. It's a Swedish laugh. <laughs> it's not connected with the old. Not surprisingly, the students of the Buddha were called travellers, the ones who listen. Not just to what the voice of the, the Dharma teacher is saying, but the ones who listen in here, really, really listen. And perhaps in that listening, there's a possibility for seeing and knowing. So one person in a small group was reporting. And here every day, nothing unusual. Just after, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but just after the talk, sometimes we look and we think, all this self, I, me and mine, all the world that's going on wrapped around it, it's like, the person said rather nicely, it's like a science fiction. And we can find ourselves kind of living in a world of science fiction. And, as Ajahn Buddhadasa, the great radical reformer of uh, Thailand, my older teacher, the problem with human beings is that we have made all these fictional ideas and beliefs and views and self and other, put so much into it, we think this is the true reality. And that's why nobody will be told quite regularly by your parents, you are not living in the real world. <laughs> Which is, I must say, uh, just a sideways comment here, is pretty rich. <laughs> coming, coming from parents who spend seven nights a week glued to the television set and telling us we're not living in the real world. Right. Just a sideways, we'll get back to the. <laughs> <laughs> so the teachings, <coughs> looking to, to see, what is this seeing and knowing? What is it, this seeing and knowing? And sometimes it's a person report. I see this movement, this expression, this unfoldment, this dance of life going on. I see how much I project into it and build it up how others do it, how we create self and other out of it, and all the suffering that goes on in that whole bubble, bubble of it. Giving it so much significance. And now I see that can't be what's finally authentic. So where's the trust going to go? Somewhere or other, in it all, there is some kind of seeing and knowing which matters. 
And in the ethic in life, any real and radical engagement with life surely takes some interest in what in this seeing and knowing. And if truth matters, I hope it does for all of you, the seeing and piercing the bubble allows us to rest with the truth of things, of which words cannot speak. But to live the truth of it. And the living of the truth is the piercing of the bubble. And we're free, and as, the, as the, the Buddha said. It's like we've been living in this bubble like a chicken in a shell. And at some point, it just cannot live in that shell any longer. It, the organic force of it has to break out of it. Cannot live in it. And that breaking out of it is the power of truth and is the truth. We know, we know, no, no, what it, where it comes from, how it does it, what it does, but what truth does is liberates. And one who knows truth knows, 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 one who knows truth knows the freedom and the liberation that goes with it. And it's got nothing to do, believe me, with our cherished personal freedom which we obsess about in our daily life. Nothing, that's nothing to do with liberation man or a woman could be in prison for the rest of her or his life, could have all her or and his lib freedoms, personal freedoms, all taken away. The whole day is structured around the imprisonment. You've just had nine days of it. <laughs> Eight. And despite that, one can know true liberation even when all the personal freedoms are gone. It's a different realisation. Truth liberates. If it doesn't liberate, it's not truth. If it doesn't liberate, it's not truth. May all beings see into life. <coughs> Male beings explore seeing and knowing. May all beings know the sweet liberation of truth. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes. <coughs>